Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I always think inside first, inside out. It really, it's psychology. It's one of the reasons I become, wanted to become an actor because it's all psychology. Why does this character do the things he does? Why does he think these thoughts? Why does he respond and react the way he does? Where does that come from? And then the other, the, the outside, the physicality, that is important too, but it's just a layer. It's the icing on the cake. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ramon Alam. And I am your other host, Isaac Butler. I wonder if some of our listeners recognize the voice that we just heard that of the actor Blair Underwood. Isaac, why don't you tackle the quick recap on Blair Underwood's career? Oh my God. Well, I mean, he's done everything, right? I mean, shortly after leaving Carnegie Mellon, uh, when he was an undergraduate acting student, he started getting TV work and that led very quickly to a leading role on LA law. And since then he's been in TV shows, he's been in movies like deep impact and set it off. And, uh, 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 he was in, in treatment and sex in the city and dirty, sexy money and agents of shield. He's been on stage a bunch of, he's sort of like, like really done everything I feel like uh, as an actor on, on all levels of the industry. But there's a particular project that you're talking to him about, right? And it's a project that I think working listeners might want to know about. Could you fill me in there? Yeah, absolutely. So he is in an audio play. It's a new audio recording of a play actually did a few years ago in Williamstown called Paradise Blue by Dominic Morisot. And that is uh, being released by Amazon as part of their Audible Originals line. A lot of Audible Originals, which is original audio programming, just what it sounds like, they're actually adaptations of plays, audio adaptations of plays. And if you're a New Yorker, you might know that Amazon has actually pre-pandemic, they took over an off-Broadway theater in which they were producing plays that they were then releasing as Audible Originals. Those were all one-person shows. One of them starred Billy Crudup, another starred Carrie Mulligan. Um, and one of the, the, I think, newer things they're doing now is doing actually multi-character plays. And this is a multi-character play. Andre Holland, the great Andre Holland, is in it too. It's directed by Ruben Santiago Hudson. Um, uh, so they're sort of beefed up what they're doing over the course of the pandemic in terms of a adapting theater to your ears. You know, I am missing live performance. And I know that if I am feeling that absence, it must really be getting to a theater guy like yourself. But I do think that there's been a lot of creativity seeing performers and theatrical companies find these workarounds using technology, allowing them to do their work to perform for audience. Is that part of what this new endeavor is about? Yes and no. If I may, really quickly, though, to also shout out uh, my friend Mike Daisy has actually started performing 
live. He does shows for fully vaccinated audiences because he's a one person crew, right? So they don't have to have a lot of people in rehearsal or whatever. Uh, uh, and I am actually going to go see him perform on Friday. I'm going to my first live theater event since February. I'm going to start crying talking about it. I'm going to my first <laughs> live theater event since February of 2020. And yeah. I feel unbelievably emotional about it. So you're yeah. right. I, I am missing it a great deal. Um, Audible Originals uh, predates the pandemic, but my guess would be is that they, like everyone else who's producing work that touches the theater, is thinking about, well, what else can we do, right? What else is out there? What what more can we be doing right now to fill the need that people have? And so they've released a whole bunch of new Audible Originals over the past couple months, of which Paradise Blue is one. So Isaac, you are a director. You're somebody who is just finishing up a book about acting. I suspect you're probably really comfortable talking shop with a performer, but I wonder if you ever feel starstruck. Like if you were going to direct Kate Blanchett, you know, would that feel difficult? Or do you find it just like, you know, any other day to hop on a Zoom and find Blair Underwood there waiting for you? Well, you know, what really helped with the whole Starstruck thing was uh, doing The World Only Spins Forward, the book that Dan Coyce and I wrote about angels in America, because we interviewed like 250 people for that book, and a lot of them were pretty famous. I mean, that helped me get over feeling starstruck. These are normally just... They might deal in a rarefied world, but for the most part, they're regular people with regular concerns. They have a job. They care about the job. You know what I mean? And that was certainly my experience with with Blair. He was very personal. It was a very friendly conversation. Um, I do get starstruck at times, though. You know, the very first time I interviewed Nathan Lane, I got really starstruck because he's someone I've been watching since I was a kid. And because you mentioned her, I actually got very starstruck by Kate Blanchett, whom I have never spoken to, including in this incident. We were just standing next to each other because we were both conveying our well wishes to the same director of a show at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, right? And she was there to say hi to him and I was there to say hi to him. And she was wearing, you know, like a camel overcoat just huge glasses and and she was so like elfin and strange and like an alien being that i i just completely was like i could barely say hi to the director i was there to say hi to so it does indeed uh happen um but for the most part i've grown pretty comfortable with it well i am extremely excited to hear two theater nerds talk shop but as i understand it this week slate plus listeners are getting something pretty juicy could you give us a sneak preview? Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you who have Slate Plus, uh, Blair and I are talking about the time in the early part of his career in the 1980s. He wound up accidentally seated next to Sidney Poitier for a flight across the United States. And I asked him what they talked about and what lessons he took from that conversation for the rest of his career. Just as a reminder about Slate Plus... Members enjoy exclusive content, zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, but of course, most importantly, you'll be supporting the work that we do here on Working. It's only a dollar for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. Okay, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Blair Underwood. Thank you. 
Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Blair Underwood, thank you so much for joining us today on Working. Oh, man, Isaac, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You uh, studied acting at Carnegie Mellon in the undergraduate program there. Right. Do you feel like you still use the training you got in college and in your work today? Oh, I'm sure I do. You know, I uh, my major was music theater, actually. Mm -hmm. And that went, I mean, I was never really a great singer or a great dancer, but I was encouraged when I was doing local dinner theaters in Richmond, Virginia at the Swift Creek Mill Playhouse. I know Swift Creek Mill. No, are you serious? Yeah, my whole family's from Richmond, Virginia. I've been Get to Swift out Creek here. Mill. I've seen what? shows at Swift Creek Mill, yeah. <laughs> I really hear that. That's amazing. Yeah, no, that's, well, that's where I kind of started in, uh, when I was in high school. Amazing. Yeah, so Eloise LeBron, i never forget, she was a, a, kind of a standard player there at the time. And I was a junior in high school doing Finian's Rainbow. This had to be 84, 84 uh, no, 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 81, 82. And she said, listen, if you want to really, if you're serious about this acting thing, you've got to become a triple threat. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. What is that? She said, well, you got to learn how to sing, dance, and act. So, you know, learn different disciplines. So, therefore, you have more of an opportunity to be employed. And I said, okay, cool. So, that's what I do. And I kind of followed that path and, and tried to learn as much as I, I could just about, you know, performing in different ways. So, therefore, when I ended up going to college, I ended up becoming a music theater major. Mm. And I do find, especially in the, the dance training we had, I, I find that different characters I play, how the physicality is incorporated into playing that character. You know, you play the character from the toes up. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that came from just the training and the understanding of just, you know, knowing your body and the space that you're taking up and how it, how your body moves and plays in that space. Another thing, we had, I had a teacher at Carnegie Mellon. Her name was Victoria Santa Cruz from Brazil. And, you know, we had classes where we learned all the technique and the classics and all, you know, just everything we needed to know about acting, and which was fantastic which is which is the, the training process but she kind of threw all that stuff away she said that's important but now that now that you know it let it all go and her whole thing was be there just be there in the moment don't think just feel and be there and that that very simplistic instructions is something i take with me all the time i often think about that throw everything else else out the window you know, the person in your eye line or the, the light or the cameras or the people watching on the sidelines or the audience or whatever, somebody eating popcorn in the third row, whatever it is, I just, you know, it's there because you're aware of everything. But at a certain point, you've got to let all that go and just sit in that moment or moments of that character. Hmm. Do you do a lot of preparation when you're going to play a role? Or you, you know, you said you were thinking about like the physicality of the character or you sitting there breaking down your script into beats or, you know, what, what's your preparatory process like? Well, it is. I mean, I do a lot of preparation um, primarily because you want it to be in your bones, everything to be in your bones. And you don't want to have to think about it, especially theater. Um, I'm about to direct and act in a movie right now and I'm just being hard on myself to learn the lines because there's too many other things to be concerned with, especially direct. Directing is a full-time job. Playing the lead in a film is a full-time job. So when you're trying to juggle both, it's, it's a lot. And I was just thinking about this last night. You know, whenever I've done a play, I try to be off book before I even start the first rehearsal. And that's not to impress anybody. That's not to say anything, to do anything but for 
to be ahead of the game. So the more, you, the faster you know it, the faster you get it in your brain and in your body and in your in your in your in your spirit, the better you can really. I what I said, play because that's when you can really. That's when you can let everything go, be there, and really play and be that character so yeah but you know i i I don't it's funny you mentioned that about breaking down the scripts i thought about sometimes you see scripts i see people write they'll do slashes and inflection points and all that stuff and i never have done that and and it kind of goes against whatever training we had which was play the moment you know how we talk what we do is going to be different every time it comes out even with the same intention Mm -hmm. it could come out 10 15 20 30 different ways so it's not changing the intention because you don't want to change the arc of whatever the scene is about or the story, but uh, there are many different ways to do something. So I don't want to, I don't ever like getting locked into inflections uh, or even rhythm or pace, just the intention. So do you think of yourself as kind of starting with the text or starting with your body or is that a false dichotomy to even think about it that way? You know, whether it's outside or inside or, or whatever? I don't think it's a false dichotomy. I always think inside first, inside out. It really, it's psychology. It's one of the reasons I become, wanted to become an actor because it's all psychology, behavior. Right, yeah, totally. Why does this character do the things he does? Why does he think these thoughts? Why does he respond and react the way he does? Where does that come from? That's all psychology. That's all the, in, the internal uh, machinations and thought processes of the character at the time. And then the, other, the, the outside, the physicality, that is important too, but it's just a layer. Mm. It's the icing on the cake. Uh, do you do a lot of research? I mean, to take, for example, the character you're playing in, in Paradise Blue, right? He's a, he's a bebop trumpeter and a club owner, you know, mm. of a specific time in Detroit. Are you researching those things for character ideas or, or are you more just focused on, you know, what is the intention? What does he want? What are his tactics? No, it's, it's all part of the process for, you know, for Paradise Blue, because it's set in the forties in Detroit, I was fascinated. First of all, I'm a, I'm a lover of history by this the setting of Paradise Blue. It's set in a place called Black Bottom, Detroit. I had never heard of Black Bottom, but Black Bottom, Detroit was a place in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. They had about three or 400 black-owned businesses. They had a whole area called Paradise Valley that was all jazz clubs and restaurants and speakeasies. And, and I had never heard of that. And, you know, of course, it was, it was dismantled I think in the 50s or late 40s. I mean, that's part of what our play is about. Um, in the 50s, when Mayor Kobo came into Detroit and he wanted to base a lot of gentrification, but he wanted to break up that neighborhood and, and drive a freeway right through it. So all of that history that I'm, I'm remembering right now is important to know the world that you're living in. So to answer your question, it starts internally, then you build the physicality, but then you also build the world around you. And and it's I find it so important. It's critical to understand that world because that can affect how you walk how you carry yourself, um, how you interact with each other. You know, the man you are in this world, this is a black man in the 1940s who is an artist. He's a brilliant musician. And there's a great line, I wish I could think of it offhand, but it speaks to being brilliant and black and forced to be second class and how that can drive you insane. And that's really his journey. You know, so if you if you understand, I mean, I have my 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 walk in 2021 as a black man and dealing with police and law enforcement and all of that. That's a different kind of walk. I mean, you you see you hear so many like young black kids today or say, I would never I would never be a slave. You know, I would run away or I'd kill the say, Well, you know, you weren't there. It's easy to say that. So context matters. So, yeah. So that that history and understand that history is, is imperative, I think. And I imagine that's a very different walk from what you were doing in a soldier story, the, the play you were in on Broadway that was shut down by the pandemic. 
Yeah, and that's that's the thing, and it's one of the things I've tried to, Isaac, my whole life is try not to repeat myself, and in mm-hmm. subtle ways. I mean, characters I play, they may not be demonstrably different, and even in the appearance, but but the thought process, how they think, what they do, when and how they do it, um, is very unique, and it's the subtleties. It's one of the things um, that I was taught. Another thing in Carnegie Mellon, Liz Orion, who was my freshman drama teacher, acting teacher. She said, you know, the difference, which I'll never forget this, the difference between good, very good, and great is specificity. Hmm. The specifics, the details, how you think something, what you do, the nuance of it all. Uh, So it's not so much, I look at a lot of characters I've played, I mean, you mentioned those two, you know, Blue and Paradise Blue and Captain Davenport and uh, Soldier's Play. They are very different in appearance, but sometimes... Even in appearance, they may look similar, but it's all about the specificity, the specifics of who these people are. Mm. Are you the kind of actor who likes to use your own, you know, life experiences in creating the imaginative <laughs> reality of the work, or are you sort of like effective memory? I just don't get that stuff anywhere near me. No, I, I like, I got to use what's real. I, yeah, I, I draw that in, lean into anything that's been real and honest and authentic to feel that first. And, you know, some things, depending on what it is, it's just so far beyond my experience. You have to use your imagination. Right. But when and wherever you can, just kind of open up those rooms in the mansion of your psyche, uh, emotionally or just um, intellectually. It's important to just, especially emotionally, just to kind of open that up. If, the, if it's deep pain or grief, if I felt it and I have felt that, you tap into that. And then, again... Once you open up that well of emotions, I found, then the layers of the specifics are going to take you on a different journey. Mm, is that how you're able to also control it? Because, you know, the thing you don't want to do is open a door that then you can't, you, you know, something on the other side comes out that you can't control. Well, I'll <laughs> say try to control it, but it never really works that way. <laughs> yeah, you know, because I was thinking about that scene in the first half of Paradise Blue. Right. When, uh, you know, Blue is talking about how haunted he feels uh, with yeah. Pumpkin. I see myself turning into something I don't like, something familiar, and it scares me. I got to run from them before they kill me. Run where, Blue? What you saying? It's a very emotionally deep, difficult scene. It's a kind of vulnerability we haven't seen from him uh, before. And it leads to some uncomfortable stuff between him and Pumpkin, you know, in that scene physically. And I was just curious about, you know, how you prepare for those kinds of moments when you're acting. Well, you know, that particular scene, uh, Blue is dealing with a certain... Now, now, again, in 2021 or in modern day medicine, we have names and titles to call this. You know, he's dealing with anxiety anxiety attacks and depression and all of that, and probably a little schizophrenia at the same time, you know, hearing voices in his head. So, you know, how, knowing that going into it, like we said before, you, you, I personally grab onto what I know and understand about that. My mother went through mental, uh, had some mental illness and depression and anxiety at one point, and I remembered what that looked like and what it felt like. So it, it helped me just know what that should feel like and then it's just about allowing yourself to go deeper and deeper into those, in this case, it's really, it's insecurity. It's the opposite of control and allowing yourself to lose control, you know, with, within himself, but also with, with Pumpkin. Hmm. But it's dark, you know, those are dark corners you go into. They're dark places and they're not, they're not easy and it's definitely not easy to shake once you go there eight times a week. Yeah, I was wondering, I mean, do you have a process for how you let go of that stuff? 
You know, I found I just got to go for a walk, you know, especially when we're doing a soldier's play. You know, at the very end, the last monologue I give, it just it ends with a just gut-wrenching howl and scream and just tears flowing. And, and those are real tears. And, you know, eight times a week, it's exhausting, and especially when you're doing matinees. Uh, I just found I just got to get away from the theater. I, I'll take a walk and just somehow try to psychologically push reset and then start all over again. And then two hours later, do it all over again. So at what point in your process, you know, are you starting to rope in the director and talk to them about the work or, or get feedback from them? I mean, obviously, when first rehearsal shows up, you mm. and the director are working together. But do you do you, or once you're on set in a film, but do you have conversations with them before that about what you're thinking about the play? Yeah, no, I found it's very helpful to kind of just get a sense of what the director sees and feels and what he or she is going for. You know, what is the, what's the objective? What are we trying to, what are we trying to accomplish here? And where, you know, what, what I feel in reading it and my understanding of it, just so I know we're on the same page and I'm not going too far off the rails. There must have been moments over the course of your career, you've worked on so many different projects of, you know, disagreement with how you envision maybe something as little as a scene or a beat or, you know, the whole character with the director. How do you navigate those moments of disagreement within collaboration? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, you know, Isaac is funny. In theater, it's one thing. Film and television, especially television, if you're doing serious television, where which is, which is a giant, fast-moving machine, yeah. you got to get on with it. What I've yeah. learned, it's a bad trick, but what I've learned is they'll say do something that I don't agree with. I was like, okay, okay. Then I usually do it the way I feel it's right. And they're like, that's what I'm talking about. That's it. Cut, print, moving on. <laughs> it's amazing. The, that's a, that's a, that must have been a survival tactic. That's a survival tactic for sure. Now, the theater, the theater is different, though, man, because, you know, you got to do that. You're doing that same scene. You're not moving on to a different scene and you're not losing the light and everything. Um, so, I, no, I think in the theater, I haven't had that many. We're usually kind of pretty much in sync. But I'm also someone, who, unless it just very feels very wrong, and if it does, I speak to it. I want to see if I can accomplish what the director's going for, if I can help them with their vision. I mean, I think it's important. It's, it's one of the things I love about the theater. It's the respect that the theater has for culturally, traditionally, for playwrights. You mm -hmm. never change a playwright's word. Hollywood, film and television, you're always changing scripts. You're always right. on the fly. You know? But the script, the book, and, and the theater is, is sacred. You know, if the writer wants to change it, then he'll change it. But you make it work. And yeah, I just totally. found by the same token with the director, if the director wants that, going in that direction, he or she has the overall vision of the entire piece. I'm just a puzzle piece in that. So I try to try to accommodate what they're going for. Every once in a while, if it just doesn't feel right, I, say, I just, I don't know how to make that work. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Blair Underwood. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. Want to know how to stay motivated, how to take a big risk? Whatever your trouble is, send your questions or quandaries to us at working at slate.com. 
or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to Isaac's conversation with Blair Underwood. What to you is most useful in the kind of feedback you get from a director, from the direction you get from them in a role? You know, like in a kind of ideal circumstance, what are you getting from them that, that's most helpful for you? Oh, ideally, just tell me what you want. What are you going for? What is the, the impact you're going for? Mm-hmm. That is the most useful. Mm-hmm. What is not useful is a director telling you how to say the words. Mm. You know, if I'm directing this podcast, Isaac, I would say I need you to talk to this actor about, you know, this, that, and the third. I'm not going to tell you how to set up your microphone. Right. Or where to put your pop filter. That's the, I, I, Don't tell me how to do my job. Just tell me what you're going for. Mm. So that's usually very novice directors that do that. I mean, mo- most directors don't. Cause it's kinda, they kind of know that's a cardinal sin to give a line reading. Right. You know, it strikes me that that Blue is one of a, a number of characters you've played who who are kind of um, jacked up, di- <laughs> difficult. <laughs> Let's say difficult people, right? You know, okay. uh, a complicated. They they have a certain uncompromising vision about that. You know, Stanley Kowalski. You've played Stanley Kowalski. Um, Charles Joseph Walker in Self Made is has a mm. difficult side to him as well. And, and I'm curious about how you approach those kinds of characters. Are you you know, some actors envision themselves as advocating for the character. You know, I'm on the character's side. Others of them have a sort of more, a more analytical approach, you know, or, or whatever. When, you, when you're playing a character who has that kind of complicated, difficult side to them, uh, how do you navigate that? Well, I tell you, one of my favorite roles was I had the great privilege of playing Othello at the, the uh, Old Globe down here in San Diego with uh, mm-hmm. Barry Edelstein, the great Barry Edelstein who's a master at Shakespeare. And I remember when I, when I was rehearsed for that, my, my friend said, you love playing tormented characters, don't you? And I said, yeah, I, I kind of do. I kind of do. I kind of I love exploring the, just the psyche of it, but how I get into it. I, no, I do, I do advocate for the character. I, I think you have, to, you have to like and love the character and find things to love about that character in order to envelop that skin, to get, mm-hmm. get underneath and love that character. You have to because there's usually when the well there's that word torment when there's where there's torment and tumult, there's pain. You know, part of the, the exploration is where does the pain come from to learn that. But there's pain, and that hurts. There's sadness. There's depth of soul there. Um, so I I find you have to not only understand it but you have to embrace it, and and advocate for that character to be heard to be seen. Um, otherwise, I, I, I find you're you're on the outside looking in, and you're judging that character. I don't like playing this guy because he's a he's a, a serial killer. Um, right. I get I get it I get it, but that's me, the actor. But if you're going to become that person, you got to get up underneath that person first, and then you may find that that person doesn't like it himself. That's a different thing. That's a mm-hmm. different shade. But I think you got to find that person that that at some point there was usually something right that becomes broken. Oftentimes, right. most times in psychology and in real life, it's in childhood. Mm-hmm. Where did it become broken? Where's that child who became, you know, listen, man, it's one reason I love Wicked so much. You know, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, seriously, Elphaba, I mean, the, the, to watch this child, this green child who says, I'm going to defy gravity. I'm going to learn how to fly and I'm going to become evil because right. the world sees me as something I'm not when I am good. 
but I'll become bad if that's the way you want to see me. And that usually happens with characters that are evil or mean or bad. It's usually because they are tormented and because usually they were tormented by someone along the way, usually in, at a young age. Do you worry about what the audience is going to think of your characters or is that kind of just the director's job? Nah, that's the director's job. I think you got to be all in. You got to be is all it, in. Now that you're preparing to both direct and star in something, <laughs> are, are you are you having trouble shutting off when you care about that and when you don't? Well, yo, man, that's a great question. I was just before this podcast talking to the writer and there's a scene where based on my character has to has to kill a woman on screen, mm-hmm. but this woman was the partner of uh, a serial killer. Her husband's a serial killer. And I said, I can't, I don't, the character can't come back from that just to kill a woman. You can't, and, but, so we changed it. So the woman was as bad and as demonic as the husband and maybe even controlling him to make things happen. Cause you get, yeah. So, so from a producerial standpoint um, or directorial standpoint, you have to think about those things because you want, you do want in the construct of storytelling, you want the audience to root for the protagonist, for the, right. the main character. And if they don't root for them, then they're not going to like them. There's, there's such, of course, we all know there's their antiheroes, um, but there's antiheroes, then there's antiheroes who devolve into villains. Mm-hmm. And you just, I don't, I don't want to, I don't like what they did. So, um, so it's, it's interesting. It is, you, I, to answer your question, yes, I do find myself seeing it from different perspectives and deciding what makes the most sense. So Paradise Blue, you did it in 2015 at, at Williamstown, right? right? And yeah. now it's it, you've recently recorded it, and it's being released by uh, uh, Amazon as part of their Audible Originals line. Yeah. Um, what was it like to go back into that material, but also have only your voice as your only tool for creating the role again? Oh man, it was phenomenal because I, I, first of all, I love this character so much and this play, by the way. There's the play, there's the characters, but there's also that other layer of the music, the jazz music of 1940s Detroit, which I love, man. So just to kind of just, just dive back into these waters was fantastic. And, but to do it just with your voice was even better. Uh, in, in one way, just, well, just, it was a different experience because this was the beginning of the pandemic. I, I did the whole thing. I think we recorded over two or three days. I was in my wife's closet because, of course, you know, the clothes absorbed the sound. And I was <laughs> laying up there. And I found I, turned my, I ended up turning my light, the lights off except for just my computer screen so I could see the, the script. But it just really helped me use a different part of my brain, I think, to mm-hmm. listen to the other care, not to be able to see them and not to be able to physicalize what we're doing and not to see what they're doing physically, but just tap into the rhythms and the flow and the beat of the spirit and souls of the people and then layer in the music underneath that. It was mm-hmm. just, it was a, 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 a magical experience. That sounded real good. Don't clap for that. Don't ever clap for that. So when you were recording it, were your castmates also on like a, a Zoom call while you were recording it? Or were you just recording your stuff by yourself? Or, or what was the actual process by which you all made it? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. I'm glad. No, thankfully, they, we, we could hear each other and we could see each other. And it was, I think it was Zoom, actually. So we saw each other initially. But I found myself, I found eventually I stopped looking. Once we started rolling and, and, and I, I kind of put the visual to the side and really just put up and made my script more prominent and just kind of watched the words and listened to what they were presenting. So that, that was helpful. 
you know, just have some kind of interface. But but again, what we were doing physically was very different. Having done the play and been on stage with these actors, uh, you know, we just couldn't do all those those things. Right, right. So it forces you to really color the words differently. We've obviously been talking a, a lot about theater in part because that's my background as well and in part because that's the the project that is up right now with, with Paradise Blue. But you work a lot in television and film, of course. Mm. Do you see those all as kind of one artistic practice and process or do the kind of demands of what you have to do on each of those different kinds of sets change how you work? The theater is like doing running a marathon every night, eight times a week. And it really is not easy, but it's a less difficult endeavor to work in front of the camera. Not easy by any stretch, but it's less difficult because you can stop and start. Because you don't have to, you don't have to have the hell play in your head at any right. given moment. Right. <laughs> you, know, you just need that scene for the day. Uh, so that makes a difference. Mm. I know it's been a, a while since you started in the industry, but d- did you at first find the kind of fragmentary nature of a shoot where you might be shooting a scene that's way later in your character's arc than what you're shooting the next day? Or, you know, you have to hit the mark in the exact way and have your arm in the right position for the yeah. shot, you know, uh, was was that difficult to kind of figure out how to deal with early on in your career? No, it was very difficult initially just to understand that. I mean, really what you just said, the continuity of it all. You know, you light a cigarette in this take and then the cigarette is like an inch long then it should be two inches long and all all those things and while you're thinking of making the, the scene believable. Uh, it, I, I found it very challenging at the beginning because I started in the theater. You know, I started doing theater in high school. You know, all of that and then going to school in Carnegie Mellon, learning the theater, all of that is continuity all of that is is flow from beginning to end so then when i started working and doing camera work this doing the ending first and the middle last and i was like what the hell i mean i i i found that i just had to really focus and i i became good friends with the script supervisor every job i took that person who's always watching the script whose whose job is to follow continuity and i'd always check in with i would say him or her but it's always her i've never seen a male script supervisor interestingly enough i've never had but I'd always befriend her, and before every scene, okay, where, acting one-on-one, where am I coming from? Where did I come from before this? So I could kind of figure out and just, you know, immerse myself in what that moment is about. In the days of, like, the the studio system in the 30s and 40s, there was a sort of informal apprenticeship, right? You would be on a different film set every couple of mm. weeks, and whoever was the bigger name actor might take you under their wing and kind of teach you how to do all that stuff. Did you have kind of mentors who helped you figure out how to operate on a set, or was it something you had to figure out on your own? No, I'm so grateful. There are so many mentors along the way. Almost, I've always, I've always had an affinity for older people, elderly people, but also just those who have more experience than me. I, I, I gravitate toward them. I mean, Erica Slezak, when I was doing One Life to Live for three months, when I first got to New York, I didn't know I'd hit my light. And we'd be in a scene together, and she would, like, below the camera frame, kind of reach out, grab my shoulder, and just kind of move me a little to the right or a little to the left to make sure I was in my light. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not thinking about my light. I'm trying to get my lines right and make it believable. But there have been many, many people along the way um, who have been there that I'm grateful for. When you're considering a role, you know, you must get offered plenty of roles uh, uh, (laughs) over the course of of a year. You know, um, what are you looking for in the parts you choose? You said like wanting to do something different is, for example, one of your criteria. What else are you thinking about? That's a big criteria. I don't like to repeat myself. So do something different and challenging and unique for me just (laughs) to keep keep it interesting. Um, That's one. At this stage of my life, um, I just want to have fun. 
and enjoy it. I mean, that's really a, a big part of decision-making. By that, I mean, I want to find out who's involved, who is the team of people, who's the writer and director, who are the other actors. I just, I don't like dealing with egos. I don't like dealing with BS. It's just not necessary. You know, it's, life's too short. Life is right. too short. So that's a big part of it. So, but it starts with what is the character of something different? Secondly, then in the script, is, is the script good? Is the story something that's intriguing and compelling and fascinating to do? And now that my kids are older, I, you know, one of the criteria was I didn't want to leave home, you know, so I wouldn't leave home more than two weeks while we were raising our kids. Um, now I have more freedom because they're, they're off to college. They're doing mm-hmm. their own thing. Um, so that's no longer a criteria. Well, Blair Underwood, thank you so much for joining us this week to uh, talk about your process. Oh, man, this was fun, Isaac. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So I just want to note that Blair Underwood began his working life in dinner theater, and that you, Isaac Butler, consummate nerd, knew the dinner theater in question. It it did blow my mind when you said (laughs) Swift Creek Bill. I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. I feel like this is a very important lesson for every caterer or personal assistant out there who's slogging through auditions or, you know, hoping to get a crack at a a spot in a regional theater. You really never know. Yeah, you absolutely never can tell what is going to lead to what when you're making your life creatively. You know, um, sometimes, oftentimes, I think people's careers are only really visible in the rearview mirror. Um, But I do think it's important to note that, like, look, Broadway has been hit hard by COVID, right? But it's going to come back. The big time nonprofit theaters, the public, Roundabout, MTC, things like that, same deal. But what I'm really worried about are the smaller theaters, the small to mid sized theaters, especially the nonprofits, the places that are nurturing and discovering the Blair Underwoods of tomorrow, the places that serve that really direct link to their communities. I mean, those were the places that were hit the hardest by the financial crisis in 08. And I think those are the places hit the hardest by the pandemic. And some of them aren't coming back. And so that, that, that is the thing that I think of when you talk about that. It's like, I want Swift Creek Mill to still be around in five years, you know? Yeah. And, I, you know, I think it's also really telling that hearing Underwood reflect back on those early days of his career, you don't hear any sense of, you know, that he's 
disdainful or uninterested in those smaller aspects of his work, right? That he has moved on to bigger and better things. You can just hear someone who is an actor and who was acting. And he seems so conscious of himself as someone who's just a working stiff. Yeah. I mean, you know, acting is a profession. It's a weird profession. It's a profession where you can get really famous and, you know, all sorts and rich and all sorts of that, but it's still a, a job. And I think, you know, clearly he likes to challenge himself. You know, he said he tries to do something different with each part. He doesn't want to repeat himself. And, and, but his view on that career is very much that of a journeyman. You know, and I think there's something quite healthy about that. And it's one reason why he's survived the experience of getting a big gig so quickly early on in his career, uh, as well as he has, because I don't think people always realize, and I didn't really realize this until maybe a decade ago, but um, it is actually kind of traumatic to go from being a guy who's going on auditions and hoping to get a job and whatever to having a leading role on a network drama at a time when network dramas are seen by over 15 million people a week, right? That is a level of fame, a level of money, a level of life change that is very abrupt. And uh, it's very hard to keep a level head as you navigate that. And one of the ways you can do that is to treat it like a job. I really love hearing creative people talk about their work as quasi-mystical, you know? And one of those things that actors say, and I've heard this before, is that it's a physical endeavor. It's about using your body to lose yourself a little bit. It, it sounds so funny to me, but, you know, this might be a stretch. I think of losing myself in the physical process of, like, making dinner or going for a run or whatever, and it kind of makes sense to me. Well, I think another way that anyone can experience it is to wear clothes that fit you, but fit you in a very different way from your other clothes, right? Like if you wear a t-shirt and jeans, put on a button-down shirt and a blazer and, a, and pants, right? And you'll suddenly notice that your body changes as a, mm. in response to that. And then actually your affect changes in response to what's going on on your body. And actors do that in sort of a more profound, holistic way. One of the strangest things about acting, and I've been thinking about this a lot with the book, of course, is that as artists, actors are um, both the artist and the material. They are the painter and they are the paint at the same mm. time. And mm. that makes it different from almost every other um, creative endeavor, that it's their bodies, their voices, their souls that they have to make their work out of. God, that's a really interesting distinction. At the same time, though, it's very clear that acting is sort of an intellectual endeavor. You know, we heard Blair Underwood talking about having a grasp on history itself, say, to understand how the character he's playing might have held his body at a different point in history. It reminded me a lot of my conversation for this show last year with the director George C. Wolfe. You know, you can't just be good-looking or good at memorizing lines to be an actor. You know, clearly that helps, but you have to have a brain. Well, you definitely have to have a brain if you're going to work with George C. Wolfe, who is a <laughs> genius and talks so fast that, you know, to, yeah, you're going to have to to, to wrestle with that. Um, yeah, I mean, we have the stereotype of the dumb actor, right? Or the vacuous actor or the self-involved actor or whatever. And certainly there are actors like that. There are people like that in every job. But most actors I know are uh, very smart, 
they might not have an advanced degree and whatever, but you know, they're, they're very smart and they research the hell out of everything that they're doing. And they're thinking deeply about engaging with text. You know, I, I heard this interview with Frances McDormand a couple weeks ago, and she was saying that, you know, the two things that are most important to her as an actor are, you know, like a deep engagement with psychology and that, you know, particularly theater is a collective endeavor of engaging with literature. And, you know, you, you have to have a brain to be able to do that. And you have to be interested, um, intellectually curious, I think, to be a really good actor. I really loved hearing Underwood's obvious reverence for his education and for his training. One thing that I was really struck by was a simple phrase that he brought up. The difference between good and great is specificity. I can absolutely see how that applies to performance. And now I kind of wonder whether it's really broadly applicable to a lot of different art forms. Yeah, I I think it's broadly applicable. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that idea, which is actually kind of a 20th century idea that an actor is playing a very specific person and you want to drill down into the little details and be as specific in your choices. um, That was a that was a big thing that actually changed a lot about um, how we think about acting. And I think it's absolutely applicable to everything you know you can get lost in the weeds of something and sometimes you need to just move on to the next sentence if we're talking about writing but you know particularly in a language like english where you have a thousand words that mean different shades of the same thing which verb you use you know the more specific you are about that the stronger your sentences are going to be or um even something like how we book this show, thinking really specifically about what kinds of guests we're missing and what more mm. of and things like that. You know, I, I do think that's how you take a good draft of something and make it better is by making it more specific and more true to itself. Well, I am not even an actor and I never will be, but I feel like I've learned something useful. So I appreciate <laughs> your effort this week. Thanks, Ramon. We hope you've enjoyed this show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, that you'll never miss an episode. And yes, I'm going to give you one final Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. But I also hope you'd like to support the work that we do here at Slate. It's a dollar for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you so much to Blair Underwood for being our guest this week. And as always, enormous, enormous thanks to our fantastic producer, Cameron Drews. We will be back next week for Ruman's conversation with Bookstagrammer. It's Instagram for books. It's a thing. Jordan Moblo. Until then, get back to work. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.